0: Please stand for the reading of God's word from Matthew, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And new Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah for from you will come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod secretly called for the Magi, and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and when you have found him, report to me, so that I too may come and worship him. After hearing the king, They went on their way, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went on ahead of them until it came to a stop over the place where the child was to be found. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And after they came into the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And after being warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated.
1: Thank you, G, and good morning. I'm Travis And the pastor here, it's good to be with you this Sunday, the last Sunday before the advent of Christ in Christmas Eve, as Laura pointed out, still happening on the 24th, in case you weren't sure. Uh, We are continuing in a series that we've been calling The Return of the King, using Matthew's Gospel to see the long-awaited return of what's called the Christ or the Messiah. It's It's an old way of talking about an anointed one, a king he talks about that king as the person of Jesus Christ who would be the ruler, defender, provider of a people who for a long time had been scattered, divided, oppressed. He's meant to be a king that would come and bring change for all that we're longing to have changed in us and for the world around us. He is an unparalleled amount of hope in the scriptures. There's nothing else that matches the hope that was attached to the coming of this king. And so it's meant to be something that draws us in, that gets us worked up and excited, that makes us, as we talked about this morning, joyful. Last week, we focused on how Matthew records the announcement of this long-awaited king that finally this one would come. And we saw how it revealed God's desire to move even closer to his people Than we might ask or understand on our own. And this week we're going to look, now that the king has arrived, how he starts to change everything around him, even as this small child. We're going to see for the first time how this promised king would interact with all the powers around him and how those powers start to move in response to him And they will continue to for the whole of Jesus' life if you go all the way through Matthew's Gospel. We see that. But this morning I want to look specifically at, at what these powers are that Jesus starts to come into contact with, how those powers respond to him as king, and what that response shows us about Christ as king. So what the powers are, how they respond to Jesus, and what that response shows us about this king. Before we do that, I invite you to bow your heads and pray with me. Let's ask God to fill up our time together this morning. Father, we call on your Holy Spirit now. We believe that you are able to come and breathe new life into us by the power of your Spirit. The same Spirit that caused Jesus to be conceived in the womb of the virgin, to do something that we couldn't expect or plan for, the same spirit that raised him from the dead, something we couldn't expect or plan for. God, and there are so many things that we have faced and are facing now as individuals that we could not expect or plan for, and we need your spirit to come and move again in our hearts, to be alive in us, to do what we can't do, to speak the words that we need to hear, to give us the comfort that we can't find anywhere else. So I pray this morning that you would open our hearts to see more and more of who you truly are, that you would help us set down all the things that get in the way of us just being before you as you are the king of the universe and help us to enter in as you have come to enter in with us. In your son's name and by your spirit we pray, amen. I invite you to take out a Bible if you have one. If not, there should be one in the pew in front of you that looks like this. We'll go back through the text a little bit together this morning. But I want to start by looking at what the text shows us as these these three groups of powers that seem to be encircling or orbiting around the new king, Jesus. Uh, That I would describe as a celestial power, this star or comet. We'll talk about that. a category of power that we could say are professional international influencers, and that's the magi. In the Bibles that you have, the translation says wise men, but the word is better as the original word, which is magi. And we'll talk about what that is. And the third category of powers is rulers, in that of King Herod. And together, those three groups show up 22 times, by my count, in these 12 verses. They come up over and over in encircling ways where they interact with each other. They bounce off one another. They're drawn to one another in this text. It seems that Matthew is inescapably drawing us to look at the interaction between these groups and to see what that interaction shows us about this king. So I want to unpack what these three powers are so we know what we're talking about when we see how they respond. So the first power is maybe the most strange and obvious power is the celestial power of a star. What is it exactly? What's happening here? It's hard to say. Uh, Commentators and various people have tried their best to think about what natural phenomenon in the galaxies could align with this. Um, It could be a comet that was moving. It could be a known conjunction at that time in the sky of Jupiter and Saturn together looking bright, but also moving. It could have been a nova or even a supernova flashing with bright light. Or if it's not a natural phenomenon, it could have been a supernatural movement of a star that was normally known to be in one place and was seen transiting somewhere else, or a comet that was known to move, and then somehow also stopped. Verse nine shows it, not just moving, but stopping right over one little house in one little town. In any case, it's something that looks like a star, like a bright light in the sky, and it's acting in a highly unusual way. Why would that be significant? Why is that anything more than just a curiosity? Why is that something that would actually make you do something different than you normally do? Well, the ancient world was understood differently than the way we understand our world. The ancient world understood the universe, the earth, everything, including humans, and all that was made as an interconnected, interwoven whole. That it was like a tapestry sewn together. Not a bunch of little individualized parts, but but things that were greater and lesser powers, all connecting and pressing in on one another in different ways. And in that context, a movement like this, a great power, was understood to be connected to something big, not just out there, but also here. That if these things are connected, that if you move the one end, the other end is going to respond. One commentator, R.T. France, explains that connected with this, it was widely believed at that time that the, the appearance of a star like this, a comet like that, would announce the birth or would come simultaneously with the birth of an important person or an important event. Because it was all connected when that happened, when there was power moving there, the powers also moved here. You expected powers to correspond to one another. Now, You and I might think from our modern perspective that's ridiculous. Seeing a star does not change anything about what happens in my life, but we do similar things, albeit differently. When the ground shakes, when Esther and I were on our honeymoon in California, I grew up in California. I am used to earthquakes. They don't bother me until they get to a certain point. We experienced what I would call a whisper of an earthquake a one-point-something, a 2.0. Esther, who grew up on the East Coast, had never experienced such a movement. This was literally groundbreaking for her. (laughs) And there was fear. I went back to sleep immediately. She was up for a while. But when the ground shakes, especially if you haven't experienced that before, you expect bigger forces to be at work. We expect that tectonic plates are shifting and that ground shaking is not just local construction, it's an earthquake that something else is happening, or if it happens near a volcano, as we've seen in the news not too long ago, when there are earthquakes around that, you evacuate the surrounding area because you make a connection, that one power is connected to a bigger power. Or to take it out of nature when there's a failure in multiple sectors of the economy like there were a little over 10 years ago. You expect bigger forces to be at work than one person who accidentally pressed a button that they shouldn't have pressed at the Fed or something like that. You expect that there are dynamics at work that correspond to those bigger powers that are on the move. We see connections between things too. We might differ on where those connections exist, but we, like them, are humans trying to make meaning of a world that is bigger than us. And the Magi saw those connections and recognized that there was something bigger happening, and they responded. So, who were they? If this is some mysterious star that's happening, a big power signaling something else, who were the people that saw and understood that? Well, they were, uh, you might say, elites, international influencers of their day. That same commentator says that, that Magi was originally a title of a Persian priestly caste of people who played an important role in advising kings. But it was applied beyond that even more widely to learned men and priests who specialized in astrology and the interpretation of dreams and in some cases magical arts. In other words, they were advisors, highly placed advisors to kings and rulers, helping them make meaning of things that they saw in the world, helping them make connections between powers on the move, people who were known to be in touch with the interconnected forces of the world. It's somewhat like, if we had that earthquake example, you would go to a geologist to make sense of what's happening. Is this just a small little earthquake or do I need to be concerned about something more? Is the volcano going to erupt or is this just a tiny little tremor? Or an economist, if you have rampant inflation like we've had in the past, or maybe having a little bit now, or you have labor shortages, you ask them to read the signs, tell you what's going on, how do we make meaning of this? They, like those groups of people, were influential professionals that people turned to to make meaning of the things that they were seeing in their world. And they show up in Jerusalem as this known entity, as this kind of person, and they say that something big is happening. And the local ruler, Herod, takes notice. So the third group is not just these professionals who are noticing connections between big things that are happening and telling people about that. There is someone in power who's hearing that and recognizing it. So who was Herod? Uh, According to the Dictionary of Jesus and the Gospels, Herod was the grandson of a Roman military governor who became that same thing himself. He aligned himself with some very famous people, Mark Anthony and Caesar Augustus. And they made him a subservient king over the area of historic Israel after he retook Jerusalem for them when it had been conquered by someone else. This is not the God that, or not the king that God had chosen. If you go back to Matthew 1, the sermon from a couple of weeks ago, the genealogy, you're not going to see Herod's name listed in there. He's not from that line. He's not there because God has put them put him over his people. He's there because he's ambitious because he desired to be there. And once he got in that position, this is going to factor into what we expect him to do, how he responds. After he got into that position of a subservient king, sort of a governor over a region, he executed his rivals and all their families. Not just the men, but the women as well. He was a brutal person. And he did that not just to his rivals, but he also consolidated the power of religion under himself, making it so that the high priests of the Jewish people would no longer be appointed by succession, that is, by being born into a family line. Now they would be appointed because Herod chose them. The power was being completely consolidated under himself, and he didn't care what that meant to anyone else or what he had to do to do that. So he's not from God's line of kings. He's an ambitious man who's not following God's ways. He's picking the priest for himself rather than letting God choose and he's killing anyone who stands in his way. This is not your favorite person. This is not your best ruler. This is not someone that you are putting your hope in. It's very clear to the people that Herod is not the king that they were hoping for. And where the star and the magi represent powers of of interest of things that are drawing you out, Herod represents certainly a power of threat of being a rival king it's even interesting that the passage starts after all of chapter one is spent giving you anticipation of Jesus as the coming king the first time it uses really this concept of kingship apart from talking about David is to say in the time of Herod the king and setting him up as a rival to Jesus and certainly Herod is going to see himself that way where we don't know what the star and the magi will do in some way, we're curious about that. Knowing who Herod is at that time, this is part of why the city is stirred up, you would expect that hearing about a rival king is going to make Herod go a little bit nuts in a bloody and terrible way. The city is anxious because of what Herod has been known to do when there are rivals around. It makes you think that something bad is going to happen, that this challenger to his kingship is going to face some pain. And that brings us to the second point, which is how do these powers respond to the birth of this king, this rival king to Pharaoh, not to Pharaoh, to Herod. Um, They all seem drawn to respond to him. If you notice, there's no one that keeps doing what they were doing before. Everyone does something different when Jesus comes on the scene. It seems like they can't escape the gravity of who he is, that he's just pulling them into his orbit to move in some way. How do they respond? Well, the star moves in response to him. It changes the night sky, verse 2, enough to draw people who study such things to start doing something dramatically different. To make them travel great distances when travel was not easy, comfortable, or safe at that time. They were willing to embark on that because they saw something dramatically different. This star is giving the sense in some ways that, that the universe is leaning in to point out this new king that it's lighting the way, verse 9, to bring people into contact with him, to show humanity what it already knows by virtue of being created by God. It's as if the cosmos is trying to draw our attention to what's already happened, to point out what has just dramatically changed, as if it can't help but respond to the arrival of this king, that it can't help but break free from its course and say, you need to look over here. It needs... Someone else to know is the sense that you get from this star. It responds by moving, by not being able to help but move in response to him. And the Magi similarly respond by moving. They see this celestial power and they respond with a very, very focused pursuit of him. And also, as we'll see in verse 10, intense joy where the star is sort of leaning in, the magi are taking off. They are going on a long journey here. They're probably coming from the region of the Persian or Babylonian Empire, what the remnants of that would be. They're coming a far way to go to Jerusalem because they feel compelled to go looking for the king that they know is supposed to be associated with this sign. They are driven to go and find him. They can't stay as they were. Something happens in them. I don't know if that's ever happened to you. You've seen something, kids, maybe you've seen a commercial for something on TV that you know you want. And the course of your life shifts, and your parents know it too, (laughs) because you talk to them about it every single day. You can't help but pursue that thing. It's driving you, it's drawing you. The Magi have that same drive. And when they get it, and maybe when you got it, they, at least our translation says, rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. The original language says something more like they rejoiced a very great joy. They rejoiced a joy, it's struggling for words to describe this. This is like in the movie Elf, when Will Ferrell hears that Santa is coming and he says, Santa, I know him. This is that kind of joy. It's kids from commercials at Christmas time where they are jumping up and down, screaming, even perhaps throwing up because they are so excited that they got the toy that they wanted to get. This is like a, oh, this is an excited moment. We can read that and think, oh, that's sweet, it's a joyful joy. No, they aren't like, they are excited. This has moved them, something in them is moving because of what they are finding. It's not likely that they knew God at this point and followed him, but their hearts were hoping for something bigger than themselves. Their hearts were hoping for a king that could move the stars when he would come. And now they've shown up and they've found that, that something that's bigger than them, bigger than any of them that they could expect was here a connection between humanity and the universe, and that was deeply moving for them. But the heavens had pointed out they had found a king who could move the stars. They couldn't help but be moved by seeing something like that. It was life-changing for them. It was joyful for them. It was a joyful joy. Herod does not feel the same way as we can see He finds it life-changing as well, but in a very stressful, fearful way. Verse 3 says he was deeply troubled or unsettled, disturbed is the way that you could say it. It says all of Jerusalem with him, as we already talked about. Herod goes into damage control mode, into power preservation mode. He scrambles to get control of the situation. He turns to the people who would most likely know something about this promised king that would bring people from across the lands to come and find him, and he asks them, Where would I find someone like this? Where would I possibly see them, presumably, knowing Herod's past, not so that he could do what he said he would do, go and worship, but so that he could have him killed. But... Herod's not willing to go himself, he either doesn't want to cause a stir by making people think that he is so afraid of this baby king, or he can't be bothered to actually go and do that himself, he's going to have someone else do it for him. So he he tries to manipulate the magi, this professional class, to go and bring the location of the child back to him, so that presumably he can go and send people out to kill this child. He tries to play it cool but to make a plan secretly to actually get this done and to make sure that what has happened before continues to happen, that he by power and force will be in charge. He's trying to control a threat to his power. And it's a decent plan. It's not a terrible plan, but it gets thwarted pretty quickly. The Magi are warned in a dream not to return to Herod. It It doesn't say who the dream came from, but the implication is, that it comes from God. That for all Herod's scheming and power, whatever has worked for him up to this point, the king that has come is not like anyone he has faced before. It's not like a rival that he has been in contention with before. This is not someone he can go toe to toe with and overcome. This is someone much bigger than him for at that time being much smaller than him. That a tiny king would stand up against a full grown vicious person. Herod, like the star, like the magi, seems to find himself caught up in orbit around this new king who has a power that Herod doesn't seem to have, though he desperately wants. He seems caught in it, drawn to it, and and it's going to leave us with a bit of tension as to what happens there that we'll get more into next week about how Herod is going to respond when he doesn't get what he wants but he can't seem to help but orbit around this new king in the same way that the star is now orbiting differently, in the same way that the magi are orbiting differently. Everyone is moving in response to this little king. And so what does all that mean for us? What does that show us if we think about it a little more? Let's turn to our final thought, which is to consider what all that shows us about this king. What does it happen? What does it mean when this king is interacting with these powers in this way? I think it shows us first that that this king is going to be one unlike any other that's come before. He's a king that, if we take the text at face value, and we can talk more about the reliability of these things and why we would see them as trustworthy. But if we enter into the world of the text itself. He's a king that calls the heavens, the professionals, the elite non-believers, and the power-hungry rulers to respond to him. He seems to put heaven and earth and humanity in his orbit. It seems like the entire universe is shifting when he shows up. And yet he's, he's surprisingly different than we would expect for being someone that powerful. For what you would expect with someone that comes like that, you expect something more like from Marvel and the Avengers. You expect a Thanos. You expect someone to crush and to control and to be ultimately bad. But this king is not like that. He's deeply unlike all the most powerful kings that we have come to experience. For all his magnificence here, for moving the stars, for the gifts that he receives, for the high-profile intrigue that he attracts, he arrives not in a palace in the capital of Jerusalem, not in the shining glories of big city Rome or Egypt, but in a tiny little home, in a tiny little town, in a tiny corner of the world that's populated by a few ordinary marginalized people. The king has a gravity like all that, and yet he shows up in a place as plain and simple as this. He's living with a mom, as we talked about last time, who has a bad reputation. He's living in a desperately poor family. If you go to Luke's Gospel, it says that when Jesus was uh, dedicated at the temple, that the family gave two pigeons, which was the offering that was required for the very poorest of the poor, that that's all that they could give. He's living with a mom who has a bad reputation in a poor family with some of the first recognition that this king of kings would get coming from people who weren't even his people. He's being showered with gifts, not by his own people, but by people who don't know him. This is not the ruler, this is not Herod, this is not the scribes or the priests, not the professional class of his own people. None of the priests and scribes go with the Magi. They go by themselves. Even though the whole city has been torn up over this, they have no interest in going to see if this is who they say this is. This king is insignificant to his own people and culturally way too significant to the wrong people to be the kind of king that you would imagine him to be. Yet this is how the Christ Comes Both greater on one hand and lesser on the other hand than we would expect. It's as if Matthew is telling us in putting these things in just a position that you have a king that can move the stars born in this tiny, unremarkable place into a family with a bad reputation that's desperately poor. It's as if Matthew is telling you forget everything you know about kings. Forget everything you know about power. You have to change your understanding of the whole universe to recognize and follow this king because he is so different than any king that's come before. It's precisely, actually, his difference that makes him who he is. Matthew's saying, if he's not making comets change their trajectories, if he's not getting people who have no interest in him interested in him, if he's not unsettling powerful people, if he's not doing things differently than you would like or expect, if he's not born in Bethlehem from the line of David, a now defunct king, by the power of the Holy Spirit in a conspicuous way with a woman who did not yet have a husband, if he's not changing things so much that you have to change your view of what it means to be in the world, then he is not the promised king. He has to be different. If he is not this different... He's not the king that you're looking for. He's not the king the scripture has been promising. He has to stretch and even crush your categories so that you have to readjust to him because there's something in him that doesn't fit inside our categories. And maybe that's deeply uncomfortable for you to think about changing the way that you understand yourself, the way that you understand the world, the way you understand your family, your ambitions, your career, your plans. You may not be comfortable with the idea of a king who can change the trajectory of stars, that a human would have any kind of connection with anything that goes on in the sky, which is uncomfortable. If you were to come in the presence of someone that could do that, that is unsettling. Maybe you're not comfortable with the kind of king who would invite the wrong kind of people to come and know him first. Those people, you know who they are in your mind, whoever they are, those people, that he would invite those people to come and know him first. Not you, not the well put together, not the well educated, not the well spoken, not those with a good resume, not those with a good past, but those people. You might know, I'd be uncomfortable furthermore like Herod that, that you might be challenged to set down your power to not be in control anymore, to not be the one calling the shots. That you'd have to instead rely solely on his power because his power makes your power look like dust and ashes. And that he would call you to do that Not by inconveniencing you, but by letting himself be uncomfortable and inconvenience, doing what was insanely uncomfortable for him, which was not crushing his rivals, which were like dust to him, but letting his rivals crush him on the cross for our sins so that you and I, who were playing in the spiritual dirt, eating mud pies of our small ambitions and disjointed desires in sin, so that you and I might have the king of the stars teach us to hunger for something more than we had before. Herod was not comfortable with a king like that. You may not be comfortable with a king like that. Christianity will be uncomfortable before it is comfortable. That is the way to it and through it. But Matthew says, unless Jesus is like that, Unless he is uncomfortable for you. He is not worth your time. The friendly, nice to know, Jesus is my homeboy, we get along kind of Jesus. The everybody likes him kind of Jesus. The just a good teacher who would never say something that I wouldn't say. That's not him. It's not the one that's going to make a difference. It's not the right king. You might say, that's just too much to believe, and I get that, and I acknowledge that, and it is a lot. But Matthew is trying to say, that's the only thing worth believing. That this kind of king is the lowest bar you should accept. The problem, to paraphrase C.S. Lewis, is not that our expectations of leaders are too great. Is that they are too small? Is that we don't know how to ask for something more? We don't know how to expect someone who would be like this. We are too used to playing in the mud to know what it would be like to have an amazing experience somewhere else. We've forgotten what it's like to hunger for the stars for something more than our ordinary, average, everyday experience that would let us down, for our small ambitions, for our tiny desires, for wanting to have just this one little thing, to express ourselves just this one way, to have this relationship, to, to have my past have looked different than it looked, to have my future look different. We are settling for these tiny, small things. This is a king who changes the trajectory of everything around him. Do you come to him just looking for something so small? when he's inviting you to come to him and ask for something so much more. Matthew's calling you not to dismiss the surprising and the supernatural, but to demand it, to not settle for something less than this, to stop giving up on something so much more because it doesn't fit in your categories. Can't we see that we're playing the wrong game? We think the supernatural is too much to ask for, and Scripture says it's the only thing worth having. The only thing that you were meant for, the only thing good enough for you. We're ending the game before we can even play it by saying that's just too much. Matthew's saying that is the only thing that is worth having. That is the bare minimum. It seems like the perfect argument to keep you away from God, to say that the supernatural is just too much when it's the only thing that's enough. Matthew's inviting you, demand this for yourself, find this for yourself, have have the hunger that the Magi have to, to have something more, to have a connection with a king who could change the stars. I know that sounds crazy, but what if crazy was real? What if there was something more and we are so used to settling for something less? I wanna encourage you this Advent season to demand it for yourself, to believe that you're worth having something more, that there is an echo in how God has made you that desires and deserves to be connected to the stars. So by way of application, I wanna encourage you to do just that in two ways. I wanna encourage you to pursue and to rejoice, to pursue first this King to not stop because he is different than you expected, but to let him change your expectations, to let you start coming into his orbit. Many of us when we're coming to Christianity for the first time feel like, is God gonna come into my orbit? I wanna know, God, what do you have to say about this? What do you think about that? You were trying to bring him into your orbit. If he is this kind of king, it does not work that way. The moon does not pull earth into its orbit. The earth pulls the moon into its orbit. You and I are not the center of gravity of the spiritual universe. He's not going to fit our expectations because our expectations don't fit him as something so much bigger. Let him change your expectations Pursue what your heart knows deep down it was meant to have, which is something so much more than continual dirt that we settle for in our leaders and our lifestyles. And don't stop because you're not sure of what it will look like, how, how it will make you change, what your reputation will be like with your friends or your family, what it will mean that you've, that you've waited this long to think about this or that you're just thinking about it now what your family will think about you because you're thinking about it now, or your friends, or those that you see as valuable and worthy, he can take care of all of that. If he can change the stars, suffer the cross, and yet walk out of the grave, he can take care of what's between you and him right now. The obstacles in your mind, the obstacles in your relationships, the obstacles in your work, in your home, in your family, he can take care of those things if he can move the stars and get out of the grave. Those things will not stop him. No matter how far off you feel or how high the barriers feel, they are not stepping in the way of this king. So get up and chase after something bigger that you were meant to have. Talk to someone here. Ask someone. Even just wonder in your own heart. Write it down this week. What would that mean for me? How, how would I see myself differently if I thought this was something that I was worthy of? What would that say about me. Pursue that kind of king because he has pursued you. And secondly rejoice in this king. He is genuinely good, I know Santa kind of news. Elf screaming in the movie kind of good news. And if he has led you to himself by the Holy Spirit, you know someone, you are connected to someone by faith that can change the trajectory of stars, defy the most powerful people in the world, draw in the most unlikely people in the world, and yet who also knows your name. The most powerful person in the history of the universe knows your name hears your prayers, understands your struggles and cares about you enough to let those struggles kill him so that there would be no barriers between you and him. Rejoice in that. That is something that shakes and shifts your world. That is something like an earthquake for the soul, that can change the trajectory of your life when you know that he can do that and yet he would choose me, me with all my junk, me with all my history, me for all my disappointments, my failures for the things that I wish I didn't do. He pushes all that aside and says, I want you. That's what the cross is about, pushing all that aside and saying, I am the king who does these things and yet I want you. I am going to be born in a low and lonely place because I want you because there's no place that I who is king like this won't go to to find you. let that seep into your heart this Christmas season. Because the King has come and the King will come again. Rejoice in that. Let's pray. We'd like to leave a little time for you to speak to God in your heart about some of the things that we've just talked about. Maybe thanking Him for the ways that He is so different from what you would expect that he's not small, that he's not trivial, that he's not weak. Maybe confess the ways that you'd kind of prefer a regular old king or really to be that kind of ruler of your own life. Maybe ask him to give you a heart that really doesn't want to stop pursuing him, a heart that does rejoice over him. Let's pray. God, thank you that you see us as you see us, that you are who you are and yet you draw near. So I pray that you would hear the prayers of these friends here and that you would answer. In your son's name and by your spirit we pray, amen.